Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. being here this evening, and I want to begin really with a story. It's a story about Alfred Nobel. We're all familiar with the Nobel Prize for which we are the beneficiaries uh, today in many ways, but oftentimes we don't appreciate the backstory. Alfred Nobel's brother, Ludwig, passed away, um, obviously many years ago, and on the morning when his brother passed away, there was an obituary in the newspaper that was not about his brother Ludwig, but it was about him. So he got to read his own obituary. And in there it said, we're sorry to announce the passing of the doctor of dynamite, the purveyor of death. That's the way he made most of his wealth. And then in that moment, rather than let that awakening go in one ear and out the other, he asked himself, is this the way that I want to be remembered? And he decided at that point to take the wealth that he had and rather than use it for his own glory, He said, I have to use the wealth that I have to help make the world a better place. And that was the epiphany that he had that really started the whole notion behind having the Nobel Prize. A number of years ago, I started writing a book, and thank God uh, it's done. It took about six to seven years to write. And the premise is as follows. You're at a funeral, and as you walk out of the funeral, you have a moment when you say to yourself, I hope they speak about me the way they spoke about that person. Regardless of your faith, you feel you want to do more with life. How many of you have felt that way at some point? You walk out and you say, wow, that was really an exemplary life. I want to spend a little more time with my family, about doing what's really important in my life. And you are so motivated. And then what happens about 15 minutes later? You get an email, you get a phone call. And you go back to life as usual until the next awakening happens. And the truth is, the nature of life oftentimes is what I call, it's a, it's, a, it's a highlight film. When something happens in our life, what I would call an inner earthquake. Lose a job. Somebody gets sick. Somebody passes away. Then we start getting serious about things. As a rabbi, there's sometimes times when I don't hear from somebody for a long time. And then they'll call me up and they'll say, Rabbi, I'm going into the hospital. Can you pray for me? The truth is that life is not meant to be lived as a highlight film. And I crafted this book with a following goal in mind. I begin the book by encouraging people through a process of what I call developing your prototype to try to identify what is the life that you want to lead. And then I take you on a journey, seven principles for reverse engineering your life so you lead the life now that you want to be remembered for. Because the truth is, is life is a gift. And there's so much we can accomplish every day. 
But the problem is we're oftentimes on cruise control. And the question is, how do we lead life with a greater sense of urgency, of trying to make every day a masterpiece, of making sure that we're taking whatever light that is inside of us and giving it every single day and making the world a better place? And for me, I believe very much that this world will be a radically different place if we lived our lives on that higher frequency. There was a great mystic that said many years ago, my job in life is not to resurrect the dead. My job in life is to resurrect the living. Because most times we're just walking through life without actually being present in the moments that we're experiencing. And it's a phenomenon we all can experience. I want to talk about it nationally for a moment. I mean, if you look at the world today, I mean, the world needs this more than ever. It's crazy. I interviewed numerous people for this book. The forward was written by a friend, uh, Senator Joseph Lieberman, who's a member of my congregation in Stanford. And there are a host of people that were that are interviewed for the book. Ron Howard, uh, Mayim Bialik, different people. And I was talking with another person I interviewed, politics aside for a minute, was Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York, former mayor. And I was in his office, and I said to him a couple years ago, I said, wouldn't it be amazing if the world and our country lived as if it was September 12th, not September 11th. Nobody wants to repeat that day on September 11th. But on September 12th, our nation understood there was more that united us than divided us. And we held our children and our family a little bit tighter. We thought about what was really important. And he said to me, bless you. Bless you. (laughs) And he said to me, Rabbi... I'm not sure how we get there, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And he shared the following story. He said, I remember when I was the mayor of New York, anyone know here, and it's easy if I ask this question actually in the Northeast, but was Mayor Giuliani a Yankees fan or a Mets fan? Very good. There you go. (laughs) So actually he said that as mayor of New York, whenever he wore his Yankees cap into Shea Stadium of blessed memory, He'd always get booed, (laughs) except there was one time, he said, when that didn't happen. It was after September 11th. I remember this game. It was in Shea Stadium between the Yankees and the Mets. The New York City Fire Department was there. The police department was there. And he walked into Shea Stadium with his Yankees cap on, and he got a standing ovation. And then he said he knew the world was different. And the question is, how do we maintain that? You know, when I was speaking to Ron Howard, he commented as follows. He said, I've always thought about that on the way back from funerals. I've had that specific reaction. I've also had the cautionary one where I'll leave a funeral and I'll say he was a nice guy, but nobody really had much to say about him. What does that mean about the way he lived his life? He didn't do anything wrong, but he doesn't seem to have extended himself. He doesn't seem to have reached or ever gone the extra mile on behalf of an idea, a person, or a principle. Somewhere along the line, I began to appreciate the healing power that I could see visited upon the survivors, but I also realized that we need these summations. As a society, we need to take stock. It can be inspiring or, as I said, a little frightening. So the premise of the book is really taking some time, and this is the way the book begins, to think about what is the life that we want to be remembered for. This is not a book about death at all. This is a book about maximizing every moment. And the book has not only chapters, but for example, there are 
exercises after each chapter. And I'll give you an example. The first chapter is entitled, How Do You Want to Be Remembered? And here are some questions. What would you do if you had 24 hours to live and why? Now, this is a question, obviously, that takes time to reflect on. But as uh, Rabbi Shmuley said, thank God we have beating hearts. We have a wonderful life in front of us. And having that opportunity to create the sacred space, one of the principles is seizing meditative moments to think about life, to turn off the outside world so we can turn on our inner world, then we can think about these issues. Another topic is, another question, you have five words to write on your headstone. What are they? I did this seminar a number of years ago, and I do it often, and um, one guy says, which is kind of a funny, he says, I'm Mark from Flemington, New Jersey. My five words are, told you I was sick. Okay. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Uh, most people actually took the question seriously, but um, that's another one. And one of the questions that I think is also a great question to think about is, what is worth fighting for? And I'm reminded of a book by Alan Patton where at the very end of the book, a person passes away and he goes to God and God looks at his soul and says to the person, where are your wounds? And the person turns to God and says, I have none. And God looks at the person and says, well, was there nothing in this life worth fighting for? What are the values that are worth fighting for? What are those principles that are worth taking risks for? Thinking about those values helps us understand what is the prototype we want to live. For me, this journey was very personal. You might say, why, why are you writing about this? For me, it was something that uh, really, I would say, um, obviously transformed my life in a, in a di very difficult way. My mother passed away from a brain aneurysm when she was 44 years old. I not only, thank God, have six daughters. I not only, excuse me, I'm not only the, the, the I'm, I'm, I have six daughters, but I'm actually the oldest of six children. So at the time when my mom passed away, she, I was 21. My youngest sibling was eight years old. And I didn't have a care in the world. It was literally right around this time. My mother's yurtzeit, the anniversary of her passing, is this coming Wednesday evening. And I kind of felt God is working in mysterious ways I'm doing a talk back in Stanford, actually. It's the first one I'm doing there on the night of her yurtzeit. And very much her spirit is infused in the pages. And I was with my mother's parents in Aventura in Florida. I guess if you're not vacationing in Phoenix, you vacation in North Miami Beach. Not a care in the world. I come up from the pool, and all of a sudden we got this phone call that my mother had a brain aneurysm, a second one. We flew immediately up to Atlanta, which is where I'm from, and she went into a coma, and within 48 hours, she had passed away. My entire life was turned upside down, as you can imagine. And I lived, lived with that, and I write about that. But what happened for me was, when I got into my 40s, I really began to think about where my mother was in her life, and I was at that point as well. So I always thought my mother was young as a 21-year-old. But then when I became her age... I also began to think about this question of the fragility of life and what's the legacy that she's leading? What's the legacy that I'm leading? And it began this journey, what I would call self-discovery, to think about what her life has meant for me and for my family and how can I harness that awakening not only for myself but to keep that sense of making the most of every day front and center in my life. And I think we all have that challenge. When I grew up, I oftentimes say that this is a really pleasure because I would, I, I'm a, a sports fan, Atlanta Falcons fan, go Super Bowl. It's rare that I get to say that. I mean, how often are the Falcons in the Super Bowl? 
Falcons, Braves, Flames fans, a blessed memory, Hawks. But I didn't have any sports heroes on the wall of my bedroom. I had a statement from Ethics of Our Fathers that said, Imlo Achshav Ematai. If not now, when? And it wasn't only my mother, my father always instilled with me the sense of appreciate the value of every moment. And that is a challenge that we have. I'll share one experience and then we'll kind of dive in a little bit. A number of years ago, I had a kidney stone. Now, how many of you have had a kidney stone before? I want to do a test. Here's the test. I'll see if you're good on it. Here we go. I had a kidney stone. I have six daughters. Oh, my gosh. I've actually been in some places where I get the same reaction for a kidney stone that I do when I have six daughters. So most of you passed the test. But after the kidney stone passed, I recited a blessing with added concentration. What blessing is that? It's a blessing that we actually say multiple times a day. It's a blessing Judaism has. It's called in Hebrew, Asher Yatsar, which means we thank God for what is open is open and what is closed is closed and everything is working properly. Now, the truth is, is we're supposed to say that blessing multiple times a day. And I said it with a lot of concentration after the kidney stone passed. But Judaism teaches us, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said, we have to live life with radical amazement. Everything is wondrous. Everything is beautiful. Not to take any single gift that things are working properly for granted whatsoever. And really, the mission of this book is to try to help inspire, to think about how we can lead our lives inspired, how we can be grateful, how we can keep front and center the ideals that we believe in so that we'll live the life now not only for how we want to be remembered, but in a way that realizes our infinite potential each and every day. So are you ready for me to share a few principles with you? Okay. So I'm actually going to start just by getting in the mood. Most of you may know this poem. It's a beautiful poem, but I think it kind of sets the tone a little bit. The poem is called The Dash by Linda Ellis. And if you've heard of it, it's fine. And if you haven't heard of it, it's a worthwhile poem. But it really sets the mood for thinking about not only how we want to be remembered, but the life we want to lead. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noticed that first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live in love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left. Left, You could be at dash mid-range. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spend your dash? Now I'm going to send you guys into a room to think about this for the next hour. <laughs> I would if I could. But this is something, again, you know, you can read the book, but it takes real 
time to think this through. One of the key moments for me in writing this book around six, seven years ago is I went to a conference in Philadelphia for rabbis and educators um, of all denominations, and we get to the hotel, and they say, your first task is to go back to your hotel room for three hours by yourself, and we want you to map out your life journey, where you came from and where do you want to go, graphically. And for me, that was something that revealed, I would say, a lot of who I am inside of me. I was thinking I really started with like Adam and Eve <laughs> and Sinai and my ancestors and then thinking about what gifts I have and what I want to share with the world around me. And it was really, I would say, an opportunity to dig deep, just to have that sacred space to find out what I would say the song that's inside each of us that's waiting to be sung. Rabbi Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Cook said, everybody has a book inside of them waiting to be written. Everyone has a story. Everyone has something to share. And that's really what, in many ways, this journey is all about. So I want to share with you three principles tonight in the book. There's seven. I'll share three. One is called Living Inspired. The other is called Courageous Choices. And the third is called Discover Your Elijah Moment. Now, Living Inspired means that living with a sense, again, of the urgency of every moment and really appreciating the gift of all that we have. And when I think about what it means to live inspired, the story that comes to my mind from the Bible, from the Torah, is a story about Jacob. How many of you have heard of Jacob before? <laughs> That's good. So Jacob is running away from his brother Esau, who wants to kill him. And as he's running away, it says in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, that he puts his head down on the ground and he goes to sleep. And then while he is asleep in the middle of the night, he has a dream. What's the dream that he has? He dreams ladder, a ladder with angels going up and down. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he makes the following declaration. I'm going to say it in Hebrew and then I'll translate it in English. I'm saying it in Hebrew because it sounds better. I just like the way it sounds better in Hebrew, I'm going to tell you. He says, God is in this place, and I did not know. This is the house of God. And herein is the gate to heaven. When he put his head down on that resting place on the ground, he just thought it was a piece of earth. He didn't realize that in that one moment, there was an opportunity to bring heaven down to earth. And in that location, he would create a bridge of eternity and something that would transform the rest of his life. See, living inspired means that we have to be ready for moments of inspiration at every single moment of our lives. The problem many people have is that they have what I call Paul McCartney disease or Annie disease. What's Paul McCartney disease? He's a good man. <laughs> Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. There are people living in the past. I wish this. I wish that. I should have done this. I should have done that. And there are others that are uh, captivated by Annie. Tomorrow, tomorrow, but they're not present in the moment. But we can't achieve spiritual greatness in life and holiness and sanctify every moment if we're not present in that moment. And that's something, by the way, that we hear all the time. 
Judaism does not believe that we can stop time. But Judaism teaches that we can slow down time if we are present in every moment. And it's inevitable. Take, for example, the summer. At the very beginning, you ask people, tell me what you're going to be doing this summer. And they have all these grand plans. And inevitably, a day before Labor Day, you say, how was your summer? And they say, it went by so fast. (laughs) And that's the challenge with life. It goes so fast. But in order to harness every moment, Robert Gruden gives a great piece of advice in his book called Time in the Art of Living. He says, ask yourself every day, what are you doing today that is worthy of future memory? What are we doing today that is worthy of future memory? And I want to talk about a moment when I was blessed to really appreciate that in any moment, any time, can be a moment that lasts forever and one where you bring heaven down to earth. It happened to me when I was outside security at JFK Airport. And I'll never forget this spot. I was sending one of my daughters, my second daughter, Michal, to uh, Israel. And I was not sure what I was going to tell her when I was going to send her away for nine months. What do you tell your child when you're not going to see them for about nine months? Here's the credit card. (laughs) (laughs) Then you really won't talk to them. Have a safe trip. Stay in touch. What do you say? Out of the corner of my eye, I need you. You're my volunteer. Stand up. Come here. What's your name? Darren. Darren. Yes. Okay. What's your Hebrew name? Do you know? Uh, Daron. Daron. Very good. Daron. What does that mean? You know what that means? Um, it means a gift. Okay. Doesn't he look like a gift? <laughs> See, Captain America. I'm mean, telling you. That's because I'm from Canada. Are you from Canada? Grateful to be here. Oh, good. <laughs> living in the moment. <laughs> You're living in the moment. I like that. So out of the corner of my eye, turn around, I saw a father putting his hands on his daughter. And he was giving the following blessing. That God should watch over you. God should shine his face on you and grant you peace. And let's all say, Amen. Give me a hug, man. All right, that was great. You can sit now. You feel... <laughs> Don't you feel better? That's good. That's good. So I realized that in that moment, I'm so glad I wasn't looking at my device or something. And I saw that was a message I had to take in. In that moment, exactly where the father was giving the blessing to his daughter. And then I went to my daughter and looked at her in the eyes. And I knew that's what I needed to do. And I gave her that blessing. As I was leaving the airport, I said to myself, that's something that I want to do for my daughters every Friday night. Now you might say to me, well, why don't you do it every Friday night? Well, my father's tradition in our home was only to give the blessing right before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They're different traditions. And I didn't want to divert from my father's tradition. So my father, he was living in Israel. He got remarried a number of years after my mom passed away. And I called him up on the phone and said, Abba, which is what I call him, I gave my daughter a, br- a bracha, a blessing, and I want to give my daughter's blessings every Friday night, but I don't want to divert from your custom. So he said to me in great humility, if you have an opportunity to look your child in the eye on a Friday night and to give him that blessing, that's what you should do. And then he said, if I had to do it all over again, that's what I would have done. And from that moment, I began giving my daughter's blessings I start on Friday night from oldest to youngest, and my wife gives blessings from youngest to oldest. And it's transformed my life, and I 
never will forget exactly where that place was, where there was the house of God and the gate to heaven. And then about a week later, I shared the story in the congregation. And a fellow named Maury Rosenbaum emails me and says, Rabbi, it's not too late for your father to start giving you a blessing. So I called my dad on the phone. And I said, I'm in my 40s. You're in your 70s. Would you mind giving me a blessing before Shabbat? And he said to me he would love to. So since that time, every Friday morning, I call him up because I want to make sure it's not yet the Shabbat in, in Israel. And he says to me, he says, I'm looking you at the eyes, and I'm giving you a virtual hug. And then he gives me that blessing. And I look forward to it every Friday. And then hours later, I'll turn to my daughters and give them that blessing as well. I have two daughters now in Israel. And by the way, this blessing doesn't have to be only in person. It could be over the phone. It could be Skype. I actually FaceTime one of my daughters, and I look her in the eyes, and I give her the blessing. It's in the book of Numbers, and it's a wonderful way to connect with a child, with a grandchild, to say that God should shine their face upon you, and God should grant you peace. And for me, it's a wonderful model of what it means to live inspired. How do we stay inspired in that way? I learned something from actually my oldest daughter. That's a strategy that I have in the book. And I learned this from her on national radio. How many of you have heard of the uh, radio host, Dennis Prager? All right, West Coast. Oh, he's been here. He's a good man. So he has something actually called the Happiness Hour on Fridays. And in the Happiness Hour, he asks people to talk about, you know, what makes them happy or whatever it is. So this Friday, I was driving along in Stanford, and I called my house, and my oldest daughter, Saramaka, answers the phone. And she says, Abba, I can't talk to you right now. I'm on hold on the Dennis Prager show. <laughs> I said, all right. So I hung up the phone, and then I'm driving along, and I listen to the radio, and it's Dennis Prayer. He said, it's Sarah from Stanford, Connecticut. <laughs> and I had absolutely no idea that she was doing this. And he said, Sarah, what do you do to maintain your sense of, of happiness? And she said, well, every day at the end of the day, I write down something that I'm grateful for. However, she said, I always try to write something that I've never written before. See, it's one thing at the end of the day to say, thank God I'm alive, thank God I'm alive, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's another thing to train ourselves to find new blessings in our lives that we never realized we had before. And then he asked her, how many are you up to? And she said, I'm up to 770. And she said, every night before I go to sleep, I read 50 of them. How can I not be grateful? So you could say, or the person is grateful, but it takes action to concretize that, to ritualize that, to lead with that life of inspiration. Just one other uh, strategy that I write about in this chapter, and I like to share this because uh, my dad appreciates it a lot. Anyone, here's a little quiz. What does my father have to do with Denzel Washington? There you go. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. Two things, by the way, now that you're asking, now that you mention it. So my father actually also recently wrote a book. He's a, he's, he's a rabbi, but he also is a doctor in English literature, and uh, he likes movies. He actually wrote a book called Kosher Movies. Okay. has nothing to do with sex and violence in movies. You can go online. But rather, it's life lessons that you use from film. And he actually has a cable show that's on uh, the Jewish broadcasting uh, service. It's called Kosher Movies. It's like a Siskel and Ebert sort of thing. So when I told him this about Denzel Washington, he appreciated it. Bless you. Um, because also, my father and Denzel 
Both grew up in Mount Vernon, New York. That's the other quiz, okay? So I asked my dad a number of years ago, I said, my father is also very upbeat, very grateful. When I'm with him on the phone, he'll always say, health is wealth, and he'd always say, thank God, things are good. My mother, blessed memory, when I would always ask her how she's doing, no matter how crazy the house was with six children, after she would say, hello, Grand Central Station. I didn't know what she was talking about as a kid, but now I understand that. People would say, I had no idea what she was talking about. I grew up in Atlanta. But then they would say, but then they would say to her, how you doing? She would say, Baruch Hashem, fantastic. Thank God, things are great. And I asked my dad, what was the source of his sense of uh, gratitude that he lives with? And he said, when I was a student at Yeshiva University, I remember an insight from Rabbi Moshe Bastin, who was at Yeshiva University when describing Jacob again. And Jacob, when he's about to finally approach Esau after 20 years, he says to God, Katonti mikola chasadim. I am diminished from all of my kindnesses. He acknowledges that he no, may no longer be deserving of God's grace. Jacob lived with uncertainty. He never believed that he was owed anything by God. When we live with a sense of healthy insecurity, we relish life's blessings. And Denzel Washington happens to be a spiritually-minded person. In an interview, and I I have to admit this, I only learned this about Denzel Washington by reading page six of the New York Post, which I generally don't do, but I guess I had to read it. So somebody asked him, how do you maintain your sense of humility or Academy Award-winning actor? He says, one thing that I do is I always carry a tattered notebook with me. He never wants to forget the list he maintained of job leads when he was looking for his first break in business. Somebody may be on top of the world now, but never forget where you came from. And in a recent speech, he said, give thanks for blessings every day. Embrace gratitude. It's impossible to be grateful and hateful at the same time. Impossible to be grateful and hateful. And then he concluded his speech by saying, I pray that you put your slippers way under your bed at night so that when you wake up in the morning, you have to start on your knees to find them. And while you are down there, say thank you. That's what it means to live inspired. And the more that we appreciate that ability to live with that sense of, again, healthy insecurity and the blessings of every day, that to me is one of the keys to leading a life of legacy and seizing the urgency of the moment. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. And now a word from this program's co-sponsor. Hello, I'm Sandy Reif, the General Manager at Mount Sinai Cemetery. A warm welcome to all of you listening to this presentation. Mount Sinai has partnered with Valley Beit Midrash to bring our guest speaker, Rabbi Daniel Cohen, to the Valley for this program. Mount Sinai is a Jewish cemetery located in North Phoenix with the beautiful Sonoran Desert and mountains as its backdrop. The cemetery was created for the entire Jewish community. Our mission is to accommodate everyone in the Valley who is Jewish, with no requirement of synagogue or temple affiliation. We also welcome intermarried couples. As a Jewish cemetery, we're closed on Shabbat, the Sabbath, as well as all major Jewish holidays. But we have a very unique feature not found in any other cemetery in the valley. At Mount Sinai, there are paved sidewalks in front of every grave. No one need ever walk on a grave. We feel we are providing the utmost of respect to the deceased and to their family. Our outdoor covered pavilion provides a convenient place for the funeral service with easy access to the grave for burial. At Mount Sinai, we believe that pre-planning is truly a gift you give to your family. No one is left with the burden of making the arrangements for you. You have the opportunity to make your wishes known and put those choices into effect. 
And when you pre-plan at Mount Sinai, the price you pay is guaranteed, no matter how many years later the grave is needed. Please contact us when you're considering your final resting place. Our phone number is 480-585-6060. And please visit our website at www.mountsinaicemetery.com. A Jewish cemetery will become part of your legacy. And now, enjoy Rabbi Daniel Cohen. That's one principle that I want to share with you. How you doing? Good? Yeah. Okay. That was weak. How you doing? Good. Good. Okay. So I want to share with you a second principle, which is called courageous choices. And this principle is based on the idea, I call it the Warren Buffett rule. Warren Buffett says it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five years Five, five minutes, sorry, five minutes to destroy a reputation. When a person leads a life, and Solomon says this, again, I'll say it in Hebrew and then in English, he says, better is a shame tov me shemen tov. Better to have a good name than all the wealth in the world. To know that we led lives of integrity, of honesty, where somebody can say, you know, that was a person who you could count on, you know, I unfortunately, as a rabbi, it's a blessing, but I have the experience of, I have to you know, speak about individuals, you're sitting with a family for 45 minutes and talking to them, and when somebody could say, my parent was there for me, the person was honest, the person always said hello, that doesn't happen by accident. We encounter hundreds and thousands of people in our lives, and it's oftentimes because of the small decisions that we make that generate really the essence of reflecting of what our values are. And the questions in life are, do we make decisions based on principle or based on pressure? Do we make decisions based on convenience or based on conviction? And those small decisions that we make, when nobody is looking whatsoever, ultimately define the kind of people that we are. Nobody ever leaves business school saying, I want to cheat the system. I always worry, and think about that. A guy gets convicted of, of stealing you know, millions of dollars and stuff like that. What happened? It's not like they went into business saying, this is the way I'm going to make a living. But it's because of small compromises and understanding that it's not the big decisions. It's the small decisions that you make that reflect your values. A number of years ago, there was a fellow by the name of Russell Wassendorf from Peregrine Financial Group. He confessed to bilking customers out of $200 million. He wrote a suicide note. He actually tried to kill himself. Unfortunately, or fortunately, thank God, it didn't work. But he says, how did he come to the point where he did such a terrible thing? And he writes, I had no access to additional capital, and I was forced into a difficult decision. Should I go out of business or cheat? I guess my ego was too big to admit failure, so I cheated. I falsified the very core of the financial documents, the bank statements. One choice altered his destiny. I can guarantee you that headlines about cases like this are merely the culmination of small decisions that spiraled out of control. One compromise leads to the next. Lives are ruined, and the fallout shakes the foundations of our families, businesses, governments, and schools. And what I write about in this chapter is how do we develop the moral fortitude 
when nobody's looking, when there's no external regulation, to have the inner motivation to lead our lives based on the principles that we believe in. A number of years ago, this was clear on the front page of the New York Times. It was 2012. It was the Summer Olympics. And the New York Times was reporting that in swimming, there's something called the dolphin kick that is not allowed to be done because it propels the swimmer. The problem is, is that the referees cannot determine whether or not the swimmer uses the dolphin kick within the first 5, 10 feet when they come off the wall. So the New York Times reporter was asking swimmers, what do you do if you know you're not going to be caught? It's a battlefield of moral indecision. So one swimmer anonymously said, I will use this kick to gain an edge. After all, everyone is pushing the rules and pushing the boundaries. And if you're not doing it, you're not trying hard enough. Yet one swimmer, American bronze medalist Brendan Hansen, got it. He said, there was never a thought in my head that the extra dolphin kick or two was something I was going to do. I was not raised to cheat. It's not something that I practice. He realized that a truly great life is not one guided by external regulation, but by inner motivation. He remarked that he wouldn't exploit loopholes in the rules, that it was each athlete's choice, but they will have to live with it for the rest of their lives. And that's really what marks what I would say leading a life of legacy and having courageous choices. And oftentimes we don't fully appreciate, you know, again, those little decisions and things that we do. It reflects not only us, but reflects our family as well. I teach a class for, my wife teaches a class for mothers and daughters for their bat mitzvah, and I teach a class called Man Up for the fathers and sons about what it means to be a bar mitzvah. And one of the things we spoke about was, now that you're a bar mitzvah, you carry your family name. It's a reputation that you have. And you have to be aware that it's not just you operating as an individual, but you represent your family. And one fellow said a story that his child didn't even know about, but really speaks to this. This fellow grew up in Israel, and he was speaking to his, uh, to, to his child, and he said the following. He said, when I was 10 or 11 years old, one day a friend and I decided that as a joke, we'd come up to an old woman who we saw walking in the neighborhood and pretend to ask her silly things that she couldn't possibly understand and know the answer to. The woman was hard of hearing and frail, and her confusion about our questioning was amusing to us. So we kept making fun of her. Unbeknownst to me, one of our neighbors saw this encounter and made my parents aware. My parents were flabbergasted and made two important points that I remember to this day. They asked me how I would like if some kids treated my own grandmother the way I treated this woman. And secondly, when I behaved in this manner, I not only ruined my own reputation, but the reputation of my parents and the entire family. As punishment, I had to purchase a few dozen roses with my allowance and stand by the neighborhood supermarket, purposely a public location, all afternoon, handing out individual flowers to every older person that I saw. It was a lesson learned and never forgotten. And that, again, speaks to what it means to be able to make these choices. One of the greatest examples of this, and I look at this as a source of inspiration, is not with Jacob, but with Joseph. Does anybody know what was Joseph's last name? Was it Schwartz? Was it Rosenberg? Was it Yankalevich? Was it? <laughs> what is it? Was it anyway, what's Joseph's last name? Technicolor Dreamcoat. Technicolor Dreamcoat. 
That's good. That's good. Well, Joseph's last name, at least if you say a last name, is he's called Hatzadik, Joseph the Righteous One. And why is he called the Righteous One? It's because of one story that you're probably more familiar with from the Broadway show, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, but it's in the, in the Torah itself. Joseph, by the way, is documented as being one of the most good-looking guys in the Bible. Rarely does it say that a man is good-looking, but here it says, boy, is he good-looking. And he is held up as a paragon of righteousness. See, if somebody goes to the next world, and they, let's say they weren't very moral, and they, you know, they, 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 they cheated or whatever it is, and, they, and, and the person says, God, what do you expect? You gave me all these good looks. The women couldn't keep their hands off of me. And God says, well, look at Joseph. He was very good looking, and he stayed true to his beliefs. Let me tell you what happened with Joseph. The wife of Potiphar comes every day and says, Joseph, sleep with me. Joseph, sleep with me. And Joseph says, no. But she goes over and over again. And then finally, the Bible says the following. Vayima'en, Joseph refused. Now, if you look actually in the Torah itself, there's a, what's called the trup, the cantillation. And it goes like this. Vayima'en, up and down three times. Now, what's going on, it's a very rare note, is basically he's saying to himself the following. Should I sleep with her? Should I not? Should I sleep with her? Should I? He's wondering. I mean, she's really good looking, but he's also, you know, knows he should be doing that. What does he do? And then the Talmud gives us the answer, what held him back. The Talmud says that he saw the image of his father, Jacob. And when he saw the image of his father, Jacob, he decided not to, not to sleep with her. But I always was bothered by this, because just imagine, he's about to sleep with her, and then all of a sudden, hey, son, what are you doing in there? Well, Dad, don't bother me right now. What are you going to do? He stops. So what's the big deal that the image of his father appeared? So the Ger Rebbe, a great Hasidic master, explained that in the moment of moral indecision, he was so connected to his past that he conjured up the image of his father, that he knew that any action that he did would reverberate on his ancestors and also reverberate into the future. That gave him the moral fortitude to make a courageous choice. Being able to realize that our actions are not just our own, but every decision reverberates on the past and the future really raises the level of the significance of every decision that we make. And part of that starts, which I write about in the chapter, is knowing what your values are. If somebody doesn't know what their values are, then every temptation becomes a negotiation. You say, does it feel good? Should I do it? Should I not? But when you know what your values are, then you say, as the swimmer did, this doesn't represent who I am. This is not what I do. And to invoke one of my favorite characters, Albus Dumbledore, who says this quite well. For those who are Harry Potter fans, please indulge me for a minute. But Albus Dumbledore says it very well, and I'll try to do it with my accent. Here we go. Pray for me. Please help me. (laughs) I'm going to try this. It goes like this. It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are far more than our abilities. It's our choices that show who we truly are far more than our abilities. And that ultimately represents the values of who we are. I conclude this chapter, again, there's a lot in here, with, for me, what I consider a very courageous politician, which is Senator Lieberman, somebody who I admire and I'm very friendly with and close with. And um, 
he makes the following point, and I think it's a guide for us when thinking about courageous choices and leading a life of legacy. He says, when I decide a course of action, it's not for fear of failure. If I lose because I stood for my beliefs, I will always be at peace. I never want to be remembered for playing life safe. I want to be remembered for doing what was right. And when you keep that in mind, it's a great source of strength to make hopefully those courageous choices. So that's the second principle that's in the book. Just want to conclude by giving you the third principle and then just a little, little thing at the end and then we'll take some questions. Third principle is called discovering your Elijah moment. And I call this at funerals the standing room only phenomenon. Sometimes you'll be at a funeral and you'll see literally there's somebody standing on the side of the room and if you could ask the deceased who that person is, they wouldn't know who that individual is. If you could ask the family, they also don't know who that person is. But that person is there because of one moment in time that that individual connected with that person and potentially changed that person's life. And the essence of discovering your Elijah moment is from a story about Elijah the prophet. How many of you, by the way, have ever seen Elijah the prophet? He shows up at a Passover Seder. He shows up at a circumcision. There's stories about Elijah sightings. Well, there's a story of the Baal Shem Tov, a great mystic, that one of his students felt that he was finally worthy to see Elijah the prophet. And he says to the Baal Shem Tov, I want to see Elijah the prophet. And the Baal Shem Tov says to him, well, you can see Elijah the prophet if you pack up food for Shabbat for the Sabbath and take it to this widow and her children deep within the forest. And if you spend Shabbat there, you'll see Elijah the prophet. So he goes Friday night, no Elijah. Saturday, no Elijah. He's getting anxious. It's the end of the Sabbath and still no Elijah. He comes back on Sunday, frustrated to the mystic. And he says, you promised me I would see Elijah the prophet. The Baal Shem Tov says, go back next week. Do exactly as I told you. Take the food, go into the forest, and bring it to her. So he does what his master tells him. It's Friday afternoon. He's getting close to the house. And he's with an earshot. And he hears a child that's crying out to the mother and says to the mother, Mommy, where are we going to get food from this Shabbos? And the mother turns to the child and says, Just like Elijah came last week, Elijah's going to come again. And it was in that moment that he realized that he was the Elijah that this woman was waiting for. I believe that if we lead our lives understanding that we can be the Elijah for one person, our lives would be radically different than those around us. Mark Twain said it very well. The two most important days of your life are the day when you're born and the day when we understand why. There are certain moments in life when you know that you have an opportunity to literally make somebody's day, to spread a little bit of your own light. We can't change the world, but we can change the world of one person. And that's the way the world changes, a little bit of light one step at a time. I was meeting with a group of women who I study with up in Hartford. I was a rabbi there before Stanford. And I asked a woman, tell me about one of the most spiritual moments of your life. And she shared with me that it happened at a supermarket in West Hartford. A few weeks ago, I was getting out of my car at the Big Y parking lot. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw an elderly man with orthopedic shoes slowly exiting his car and noticed that one of his shoes was untied. I'm not sure what possessed me, 
but I went over to him and asked if I could help him tie his shoes, as I knew it would be hard for him to bend down. With tears in her eyes, she shared that in that instant, she felt closer to God than almost ever before in her life. Almost the entire group welled up in tears. She wondered why she became so emotional when sharing her story. I explained that in those few seconds when she intuitively sensed her ability to become a messenger of God, her soul was on fire. It was her Elijah moment. And these moments are everywhere. One of my close friends is a a pastor from Darien, Presbyterian minister. We actually now have a radio show. It's called The Rabbi and the Reverend. It's in different parts of the country. And we started something about a year and a half ago. It's on Facebook called The Elijah Moment. The basic idea is in a world of increasing acts of violence, we have to increase with acts of kindness. Just spread the light in every moment. And that can be done everywhere. You know, sometimes, for example, you're at a supermarket, and literally, we're not looking up at the person that we're encountering. But in that moment, asking the individual how they're doing, sharing something with them, literally can transform a person's day. I started something in my synagogue. I was inspired by a person. You could look it up tonight called Johnny the Bagger. Anyone heard of Johnny the Bagger? So Johnny the Bagger is a, a, child, with a, a child with learning uh, disabilities. And he is a bagger at a supermarket. And one time, a customer service person came into the supermarket and was talking about how you engage people. Not don't just like serve them, but how you got to be friendly. It's customer service. So he has Down syndrome, and he came home that night and said to his father, what can I do to make things a little bit better? So they came up with the idea that every day he would put like a little nice quote. And instead of just putting the bags of the food, he would put quotes in people's bags. Well, as it turns out, within about a week, his line was the longest line in the supermarket. (laughs) And people would actually come into the supermarket just for the quote of the day. Because that simple human interaction changed people's lives. I was inspired as a result, and I do it in my synagogue now. I have a quote of the week. It's usually reflective of the sermon. And as people are walking out, I give them a quote of the day. Just again, we never know what these, what these moments are going to do. We can go in and out of people's lives and never see them again. But there is an opportunity in one moment to literally make an impact that can be remembered for a very long time. I actually have a ministry, I use that word kind of loosely, because I'm a rabbi. It's in uh, one of the places where I like to spend a lot of time is Starbucks. I meet a lot more people there than I do in synagogue during the week. And literally, almost every uh, day, I'm there early in the morning, I got my coffee, you know, I meet people, and next to me, there's another guy, actually, who's a, who is a deacon in a church, and that's what he does, too. And we share blessings all the time. He's hanging out, I'm hanging out. And I got to know him, and he told me, about his life story and how he felt touched by an Elijah. And this is a great, this is a story that he shared. He says, I want to share with you, Rabbi, my Elijah moment. Back in 1996, I experienced tremendous difficulty in my personal life and as a result became very discouraged and depressed. I found it very difficult to get through life on a daily basis and I spent a lot of time with my parents to get the needed moral support. One evening while coming home from work, I met an elderly gentleman on the New York City number five train heading uptown from Wall Street. He came on the train of 14th Street and immediately saw the sadness in my eyes. He reached out to me and started a conversation and questioning how I was feeling. I was so desperate that I came off the next stop at 42nd Street and I bared my soul to a complete stranger. 
He was a kind and compassionate listener. After pouring my soul out to him for an hour, he assured me that things would get better, and he gave me his phone number to call him whenever I needed a listening ear. I called him for five consecutive days and spoke about the many things that were on my mind. He just listened. By day number six, I had a very supernatural experience. I felt my heavy burdens physically lifting off my body, and I felt a strong sense of God entering in. Ever since that event, I started a ministry for reaching out to strangers. A stranger reached out to me and made the difference that I needed. I was then led by God to encourage others during the very early morning hours at a Starbucks location. My soul now sings at Starbucks every morning. There are times when I think that that fellow is an angel. And the truth is, we have these opportunities all over the place. A number of years ago, it was 9-11. It was, it was I was listening to CBS 880 radio. And there was a New York City police officer who was being interviewed. And he said, today was a great day. And they asked him why. He said, well, somebody gave him a $20 bill just to thank him for what he's doing for the city. So I was sitting in my car with my cup of coffee. And I said, you know, I could just go home or I can go back in and try the pay it forward experiment, which I like to do a lot. So I walked back into the uh, coffee shop and I said to the cashier, can you pay for the next person? So I took a step back and it was a young man with a, with, had a little baby there and the woman said, he paid for your coffee. So he walked over to me and he said, why did you pay for my coffee? And I said, well, it's 9-11. I just wanted to show a little bit of a little, little support. And, and, and he said, well, that means a lot to me. And I said, why? He said, I was at ground zero on 9-11. I said, what were you doing at ground zero? He said, I'm a retired New York City police officer. And then I knew that God was helping me orchestrate this. We asked for people to share stories, and these abound. I just want to share one last story, then I'll, then I'll just bring it home. A woman wrote in to us. She said, I am a NODA volunteer. Does anyone know what the word NODA means? I didn't know this. It's not a Hebrew word. N-O-D-A. NODA stands for No One Dies Alone. Volunteer at Stanford Hospital. We stay with patients who are at the end of their lives who don't have loved ones available to be with them. We become their loved ones as they leave this world. In September, I sat with a cognitively disabled man several times. After my first visit, he was awake, and I fed him vanilla ice cream. By the last visit, he was heavily sedated and nearing the end of his life. I held his hand and somehow felt even more connected to this patient than I had to others that I sat with. A few weeks ago, I shared my experience with my family and found out that this gentleman's father was the doctor who delivered me at Stanford Hospital in 1956. His father was there to help my arrival into this world, and I was there to help his son's departure 58 years later. That was my Elijah moment. And just imagine if we truly live with the sense that in every moment of every day, when you walk into a room, Ask yourself, whose day can I make today? Whose day can I make? Who needs me to send them an email? Who needs a phone call? Who needs a smile? That's what it means to create a life of legacy. Every day that God gives us, we have a unique mission. It's a different mission than tomorrow. It's a different mission than yesterday. Every day is an opportunity to realize that divine potential that is inside of us. That's what it means to lead a life of legacy. God is not asking any one of us to be like anybody else. He's asking us to be the best person that we can be. My hope and prayer is 
is that we realize these ideas in our own lives. Not to lead a life where it's a highlight film, but to seize the urgency of every moment, to live inspired, not only to make good choices, but to realize Elijah moments are everywhere. Everybody here, a little light, can truly, I would say, rid the world, rid the world of a lot of darkness. Everyone here is a candle. There's a lot that we can do to light up our own lives and those around us. God should bless us with the strength to do this, not only to think about how we want to be remembered, but God willing to lead that life now, one of greater inner fulfillment and God willing, one of greater impact. Thanks for your time. Welcome. My pleasure. Thank Thanks. you so much. I, you know, I, was, I was about to say I feel so on fire right now that I'm going to stay up all night. And then I remembered I have a seven-week-old. So it's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, uh, I want to take 15, 20 minutes for any questions folks have. Um, do you want to take them? Or do you want to sure, and I'll take questions. Okay. You know, it's kind of those things you just think about. But question mark, a little bit on the brief side, and end with the question mark. Yeah. yeah. So I always thought it would be a great idea to have your obituary written before you pass away. Mm-hmm. So you can see what people say about you, mm -hmm. and then you get a vision of how to make that change. Yes, actually, that's really, to a certain degree, it's not necessarily obituary, but I encourage people to think about those things. There's like 10 questions here, because it does give you a sense of what the goal is. God willing, we'll all lead long lives, but going through that exercise is correct. You want to hear it from the others. Yeah, it's true. You know, it's interesting. I was, and I write this about in the book, I was sitting in a class, and um, we, a number of us went to a funeral. And, uh, and at the funeral, all the different people said the same thing about this person, how she was a person of, of deep faith and things like that. And then someone in the class said, yeah, I'm going to tell my children what they should say about me. <laughs> I said, you're kind of missing the point. <laughs> you got to lead that life. There's a movie coming out with Shirley MacLaine about writing her own obituary. Oh, so that's a good tie-in. When's that movie coming out? It's called The Last Word, I think. Oh, so that's perfect. It's actually interesting. I'm doing a, um, I forgot to call the guy today. I was a little busy, but I'm doing a panel in New York in about, I guess, maybe three, four weeks with one of the writers of the obits in the New York Times. And we're having a conversation about, you know, again, what goes into that and what are the things that a person wants to be remembered for. They're not always positive, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but it is a great, great exercise. Um, no. What's her name? No. Do you, okay. She's also a bitch. Okay. Okay. A uh, different fellow, though, but yeah. Yes. Well, I would say, again, you know, I always, um, and I think it's the responsibility of the rabbi to tell the truth, but only talk about the good stuff. No, it's, I, I think it's, people know when somebody is not sincere. I mean, that's a joke. You know, basically, though, and I've been with families where it wasn't always the, the easiest of relationships, but I'll say this is a time to give honor to your mother and your father. Tell me some things that you're grateful for. And then just work from that. And then you go from there. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there's actually, you're not supposed to. I mean, from a halakhic standpoint, you're not supposed to. Just say it like it is and, fr and, and, and frame it. But it is, 
it's difficult. There are some people that will feel like I gotta say all these things that aren't true, but that that doesn't do anybody any people know it. Well you may be you, you might not even know the individual who you're giving your obituary for. You're you're reflecting from what people have done. Right. So if I don't know I mean I, I'm all, I always sit with the family. And usually, um, people will just be honest with me. I mean, that, I'm, I'm, I can only share the information that I get. I'm only able to share with the information that I have. But generally, when I frame it and say, tell me some things you're grateful for, and usually what I'll do is I'll go back to their childhood. Because again, sometimes relationships can be strained over the years. But you know, parents did take care of, they took care of you, you know what I'm saying, for the first 15, 20 years of your life. And there may be positive memories. I, one of the story that, for me, was very uh, touching. I have a, t a section called Creating Memories, and it relates to what you're saying. I was sitting with uh, two sisters, and their mother had passed away, and I said, tell me about your mom. And they actually said to me, I don't really, we don't really have a great relationship with our mom. And they literally were not saying much. And I said, well, I just want you to just share something positive, if you can, at the funeral. Just share a memory. So we get to the funeral, seven, eight people, graveside service, and the woman says, I have two memories that I want to share about my mother, and this is one of them. I'll never forget when I was eight years old. I was sleeping, it was late at night. My mother came to me and shook me and said, honey, get dressed, it's snowing outside. Let's go outside and play. And I said, imagine that. It's 50 years some odd later. But she remembers that act of joy that the mother shared. And for her, that was a memory that she cherished. And try to tease those out. Because, yeah, she was strained. But that, you know, but that was a comforting memory for her. and something that she appreciated. And you know, the question is, as parents or grandparents, I encourage people to think about what are the memories that we're creating. You know? is it, is it, are we creating memories where the children or grandparents don't see us? Or are we creating experiences that they'll remember for a lifetime? Families don't always remember. You know, we think we give them something. That's not what they remember. They, re they remember the time spent. It's not only, I was talking with Rabbi Shmuley today, it's not, only, um, you know, qual it's not only a quality time, it's quantity time. You know, go ahead. So many people know their plays, but unfinished business, with fractured relationships, with fencing that shouldn't be mended. Mm-hmm. Um, what I would say is, I have a chapter in the book called Finding Faith, which is, bless you, which is the possibility for renewal, for forgiveness, for change in somebody's life. I'm a big believer, and I say this in the book, bless you, is that just because your life has gone here and there's been a conflict or you've had an obstacle, it doesn't mean that there's not a possibility for renewal and for change. The very basis of this book is that you can change. Is it free choice? Just because it was the past, but there's an opportunity to renew that relationship. It's not direct, but it's definitely in. That's what the Finding Faith chapter is about. So, yeah. Thank you. But your point is well taken. Because that's one of the hardest things when, and I've been there. I've been with people at the end of their lives, and sometimes the family is gathered around. It's a very holy experience. And other times it's just so sad because there's such conflict in those moments as well. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, and then I'll go back. Go ahead. Does having a living will feed into this in any way in terms of what you're leaving, what you want people to remember that was important to you in your life? 
Yeah, you're not talking, by the way, like an advanced directive. You're talking no, just literally writing. A, yeah, no, I think that's also, that's a great, yeah. I think an ethical is great. You know, I think one of the most famous ones is what's called Igarat Haramban, the letter of Nachmanides, which I study actually with one of my daughters. And he kind of put together what he feels are the key values that he hopes his children and grandchildren remember. But I think that's a wonderful thing to do. And obviously to, to write it, to share it, and, and the key thing is to live it, you know, not just to give it. But to live it, but I think it's a wonderful compliment to this for sure. Yeah, thank you. Yes. How can you listen to the Elijah moment and then share with others and encourage other people to act on that? Can we say it one more time? How do I or how would you? How can you? we like, take that thought of the Elijah moment and help teach it to other people as well? So, what I would say is, um, well, besides getting people to buy the book, but, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you go on, first of all, maybe you'll give me your information, but. Um, I think part of it is really your, you know, it's less about the Elijah moment per se and more about doing these acts of kindness. If people see you as a person who literally is proactively looking to make people's lives better, wherever that might be, the supermarket, the office, wherever it is, and they say, what happened? And, you, and then you begin to say, I'm doing this because I just want to bring a little more light. Your energy will catch fire for others as well, and you'll begin to you begin to inspire people. I would encourage you also. I mean, there is I, we have a Facebook page, by the way, deliberately for this purpose called the Elijah Moment. You can actually go on. Are you on Facebook or no? You on there, and you and, and you could share that. It's really meant to inspire people. Um, you know, and uh, and you, you know, it's also it's really word of mouth. You know, one person shares it, but I do believe, and I've seen this where I'll be at a place and. You'll do one act of kindness, intentional. I don't really call them random acts. That's a, the pastor taught me that. Random means you're not really thinking about it. You, know, you don't plan. Intentional means you're walking in and saying, I am going to make somebody's day. I'm going to help somebody. I'm not going to turn my eye. And then the more that you do that, you will be surprised that you will, there's an energy. Because sometimes you pay for somebody's coffee, the next person will, the next person, and it spreads that way also. Um, the book's coming out tomorrow, so... Um, Officially, we actually have a, a, a billboard in Times Square that went up yesterday, which is today actually, which is kind of exciting. But um, the more people think about this, I mean, I think we are at a place where there's a lot of division, there's a lot of difficulty. Um, but rather than talk about what somebody else can do, it's about asking what I can do. I and I love your question. What's your name, by the way, Elijah? <laughs> Charles. Charles. Very good. Very good. Well, God bless you. Keep up the ruach, the spirit. I know you're trying. Okay. Thank you. Yes? As you know, there's an age-old debate about whether the great contributions you make should be done as privately as possible or as publicly as possible. So what's your view on that in regards to the legacy of the um, I would say that um, there is a sense, and people can sense this, by the way, too, whether somebody's doing something for their own glory or kind of God's glory a little bit. I think that there's an advantage. If doing something publicly to help somebody would embarrass that person because they're on the receiving end of it, then it obviously should be done privately. But I also think there's an advantage to uh, doing something in a public way with humility that is setting a model to hopefully then inspire others as well. Um, so I think that, you know, and I say it I, as a rabbi because I'm always trying to, like, raise money or to help the synagogue. And some people say, well, I don't want to be honored at the dinner. I just I do all my stuff privately. I say, well, sometimes you have a responsibility 
to do something publicly in a way that you serve as a role model for others. So part of it depends on context. Um, if, you know, if you're running out there to say, look at me, look how holy I am, what I'm doing, then don't. But if you are in a position where you could influence others to do more acts of kindness through the public actions that you're doing, then um, your impact is much, is much greater that way. But that's the sense. Yeah. Yes. On the prize. So if the premise is you really want to speak well of you, you know, at your funeral, if nobody knows you've done these good things. So yeah, I see the balance is really good. Yeah. You, want to, you don't want to be flashing your name on a tower, let's say. But it's interesting because I mean people I, I, a couple of people said like, is it all about what they're gonna say about you? What they say about you for me is simply the trigger you know, to get yourself thinking about this issue. Obviously, uh, just lead a life that's a good life, that reflects those values that are dear to you, value every day, value people, see the spark of holiness in everybody. Then the rest is commentary, and then everything else will flow from there. Uh, who had a question? Yeah. So in a way, I, and she made an album and gave it to me. Mm. And in a way, it was my obituary. I mean, it was, because it wasn't just she's great, you know, the, yep. different people would say stories and memories. And like you're saying, it's not an overall thing, plaster in your mm -hmm. name. It was just this person, what their memory was. Yeah. And it was really a wonderful gift. I yeah. still have it. Well, it's interesting you said, I was with a group of women, I was, it was non-Jewish women in New Canaan last week, and I start off with the following question. Share with me a word that you would say describes you. Like, how do people, you know, what do you, how, how and right now, what do you think people would say about you? One word. And instead of people talking about themselves, what people started to do is they started to describe the way other people, they, they actually did exactly what you're doing. You know what? Because, again, they were very, they're modest people. But it was actually a great way for people really to appreciate how are they perceived in a way that was very, I would say, it, it strengthened relationships. I didn't realize that you appreciate what I do in that way. And it, 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 it lit their fire to realize that um, this is a gift that they've been giving, let's say, to their friends that they didn't really even realize that they were doing. So, yeah. There's a lot of um, wonderful work to be done. Yeah. So thank you very much and appreciate all your support. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.